Hey, Smart Firefighting community. Welcome to a 10-part miniseries from the show floor from the Fire Rescue International Show, hosted by the International Association of Fire Chiefs in Kansas City. You will hear from entrepreneurs, fire chiefs, and thought leaders from across the fire service talking about challenges, change management, and the future of technology. So many good stories in this episode, and I hope you enjoy. Here on the FRI show floor with a longtime friend, Bart Van Leven. Really good. Did I do it? Yeah, Bart Van Leven. It's really good. It's taken me like six podcasts and roundtables, but I think I finally got it. You nailed it. Excellent. Yeah. All right, so you flew in all the way from the Netherlands for the show. Absolutely, yeah. I had the honor to speak yesterday morning. Uh, actually, not about smart firefighting and technology, but some of the tactics of the Amsterdam Fire Departments uh, we used. So that was fun. And I saw uh, you were wearing your first ever PPE. It was the first PPE I got at the Amsterdam Fire Department, which was still a woolen jacket. And why did you wear it? The two main reasons that I signed up for this talk, two questions I get as a European firefighter is like, you guys don't do interior. It's a comment I hear a lot from European fire departments or from U.S. fire departments in respect to the European fire service. And you guys are way ahead. And I wore this jacket to show that 20 years ago, when most U.S. fire departments were probably already wearing Nomex, we were still wearing wool. So that, yeah, we might be ahead, but we weren't at that point in time. So how was the talk? How was it, you know, kind of post-COVID now, kind of be in front of a large group of people? What was the... What was the talk and what was the overall experience and feedback? Oh, yeah, like? I, I think the feedback, the feedback was excellent. People liked it. And coincidentally enough, there was a vendor here, which I mentioned in my talk, who got a lot of traction because of my talk. It was not my intention, but it's cool to see that people actually picked it up and said, hey, I want to know more. The guys are on the, on the show floor. I want to know more about the technology they use. So that was fun mm -hmm. to see that. And people come, coming up to me is like, oh, yeah, we like to hear something on how you guys do stuff. I'm not advocating that they should use our tactics or anything, but more open up your world. And that's what it was in the keynote or in the, in the address by, by the president yesterday morning as well. Yeah. Donna Black said, be open to what's going on in the world. So that's, well, that was my, was my part yesterday yeah. morning. Well, and that's useful. It doesn't yeah. necessarily mean just like listen blindly to what I'm saying, but different perspective, different ideas in terms of how to approach same, same, but different problems. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and normally, I mean, I enjoyed that talk because I heard you talk more about kind of operations and talking yeah. about in the weeds. But initially, we started talking quite a bit about how to use data. What is data? Information architecture, yeah. artificial intelligence. A lot of these things we'll dive into here shortly. So it was nice to hear that. But for this, I want to dive into some of the, the tech side. I'd love to hear kind of your sort of, um, it's August 2023, high-level hot take on all things data and the fire service right now, and kind of alluding a little bit to artificial intelligence, it's uh, something that you're seeing a lot of the media sources talk about it more, maybe it's sort of some vanity metrics, some, some headline grabbing, but there's no doubt data has continued to become a, just as valuable as, as hose, just mm. as valuable as the truck itself. Yeah. Give me kind of a little current state of data in the fire service and sort of uh, maybe some of the biggest challenges that you're seeing right now, and then also some of the biggest you know, opportunities and use cases that you think are you know, really compelling about data in the fire service. Yeah, okay. At the current state, is, is obviously very hard to sort of make one statement about because, you know, there's a huge difference across the field what, what the department's doing with it. But you see a lot of departments now jumping on AI and ChatGPT, and I, I think one of the biggest challenges remains data quality. I was happy when the U.S. Fire Administrator, uh, Dr. Lori Moore-Merrill, for some reason in my head it's always backwards, but never mind, was actually 
saying this morning that we have a data quality problem because that's you know that's sort of the elephant in the room where people say oh with analytics we can do this we can do that and with artificial intelligence we can do this we can do that but if we, if the data quality we feed these algorithms and we feed these systems is very poor the answers are going to be rubbish at best um, and in, in our chat on where we talked about chat gpt that's a perfect example if the resource that the chat gpt is using to give you an answer it's going to be a rubbish answer and it's I think that it's important that, that at least the USFA is now saying, well, we need to tackle this data quality problem. And while I walked over to this post podcast, I talked to Steve Kerber, who is UL, is running this initiative on creating this system for Neris. Neris, yeah, yep. it's called. And he said our biggest challenge is not so much figuring out the data points, but how on earth do we connect 35,000 fire departments with 35,000 data systems with 35,000 RMSs, et cetera, to this system. Because if you want to do this large-scale analytics, et cetera, and insights, this needs to align. And there has been numerous projects over the years. I was involved in a couple of them where the hard part is, for example, the definitions. What are we actually talking about? And that's the non-sexy work. It's not generating nice graphs. It's not generating nice overviews of your data. It's hard work that needs to be put into all these data systems before we can actually do something useful with all the data. So with that conversation you had with Steve Kerber, who leading the work at UL, FSRI, and, and they're, they're building out Neris for the USFA, I know they have, I don't want to say it's an impossible task because it's, it's something that they've set out to do and there's no plan B. And this is plan A, burning the boats, we're doing it. Yeah. But when you're talking about that data standards, talk to me a little bit more about that in terms of why have there not been data standards before? You know, has there just kind of been, if you've created data, it can kind of come in all these different formats and it's we're not able to kind of leverage and use it? And, and sort of why is it now so important that data is standardized in some, some context? Well, if you, if, you wanna, if you wanna create insights and make comparable insights across departments, across regions or whatever, you need to make sure that the data you're using to create these insights is aligned, that you're not it's apples, apples and pears, you know, but you're comparing apples and apples. I think, and I, I got this hint from somebody who was in a completely different sector who explained in the presentation on data management once that the challenge we have as a fire service is that we've been putting out fires without data. So we do not have a data-first ingrained culture within the fire service. So filling out reports, creating reports, you know, we put out the fire, why do I need a report? Why does this report need to be of sufficient quality, et cetera, et cetera? This is not something which is in our culture yet. So that's something we need to work on. So that is one of the problems I think we're having is that we, we can't do our day-to-day -day jobs without, without data. I mean, we've been doing that for 150 years long. So that's one part. And the other part is that there has never been a sort of a, a, a standards body for the fire service that's been willing to do that. NFPA, I've worked closely with NFPA, has been looking at data standards, but the way this organization is structured, free standards is not something that works for NFPA, and I get that. It's not their business model. And then the second part is that they just create standards. They, they cannot enforce it. So I think that's where the USFA is now taking position. Oh, we're going to create a data standard, and we're just going to enforce it by law. It makes that people simply need to comply. There's... Like you said, there is, there is no plan B. Well, you know, if you need to comply to it, then software vendors need to bend into that direction, which I think is a good, is a good thing. It's a good thing, yeah. I mean, we, you, there is an advantage, and there's a reason why governments and standards do exist to not only not stifle innovation and, and economic growth, but to help 
create a framework that is going to allow everyone to play in the same lane. And especially with the idea of now more and more data being created, we can't just be creating data in a, a thousand different which ways and expect 35,000 fire departments to figure it out on their, on their own. Yeah, and I think, I think what, what is important to recognize is that even if the USFA would say, we have a data standard to which your software needs to comply when it's uploading data to this national data system, that doesn't stifle innovation within the product the vendors create. As long as there's an adapter to that project which talks to this data standard, it's fine and they can do all the funky and smart stuff within their systems and develop as long as they want. There just needs to be a view on their system which complies to this standard and which allows fire departments to, to offload this data to this national data system. So sometimes when you talk about data standards, people say, oh, you, you take out the innovation. It's not completely true. You're yeah. leveling, leveling the playing field. Yeah. And yesterday I saw you, Dr. K. Capallo, Alex Gorsuch, having an extensive conversation about yep. God knows what. No, but it was something thanks about... To, it, thanks like, to Alex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of interesting conversation that I kind of bopped in and out on around data, around artificial intelligence. And one thing that you had brought up to me a couple of years ago when we met, you brought up the idea of uh, information architecture. Yep. Um, and to have good AI, you need a good IA. Yeah. Say that in your own words and kind of what do you mean by the fact that we need information architecture in order to have effective artificial intelligence? It starts with the data quality point. So if, if the architecture you have around your information, which is data standards and transport mechanisms, is, is flawed, then first of all, you cannot compare the data because it's all different. And the second part is if you're not capable of, of, of disclosing this information in a standards way, then it makes it really hard to use information or data from systems as well. So that's where information architecture comes from. In some sense, the web, as we use it in a day-to-day basis, is an information architecture by itself. How websites communicate with each other is open standards in the way information is encoded in websites for humans mostly, but it's, it's all open standards. And you want that for, for your data systems as well. And I think ChatGPT is a good example where they say, okay, we can access all these websites and all these texts so we can create this language and we'll go over them. If the information they use is still correct, that's a different subject, but at least getting this information together is, with an information architecture is working. The project we did for the NFPA on the inspection, testing, and maintenance, the variety of data file formats we got was literally endless, which made it very hard to do any smart analytics on that. So that's the first thing you need to solve. The only problem is even if you solve that, you're not creating the shiny tools on top of that yet. You know, that's the second step. So there's not so much, you don't get the applause for the information architecture. You know, you get, no. the, you get the applause for the cool outcomes of the algorithm. But it's critical, and I hear Alex talk a lot about this, is how can we offload cognition if we don't even understand exactly how we are doing certain tasks at hand? Exactly, yeah, and that was the second part of the discussion we were having is that, so let's assume that we are able to gather all this data and draw some interesting conclusions that could help. And that's where my interest is, people at the fire ground with this data. So how are we gonna present it to them? How are we gonna, how are we gonna put that in a format that they're actually get notified for? And we're sitting here in the tech zone of FRI, and if you look at all the screens that people propose that will help incident commanders command an incident, with my background and then my long conversations with, with Dr. Richard Gassaway in situational awareness, it's too much. There's too much information on these screens. We cannot determine which part of the information on this screen 
is going to be received as important. And that's what the discussion yesterday with Dr. Kate was also about. It's great that we now have this information, that we have the infrastructure, uh, FirstNet and all the others, which allows us to, to get the information reliably to the firegrounds. But how do we present it in a way that we are sure that it's absorbed, observed by incident commanders? Yeah. And you bring up, uh, you brought up Dr. Richard Gassaway, who I've haven't had the fortune to meet yet. I've met him a few times over video and phone call, but I know he talks extensively on a weekly basis about situational awareness yeah. and almost the, the misnomer of it. And, and again, some of these words that are thrown out there that, you know, we, you have situational awareness or you, you know, we're, we're situational aware. And, you know, again, like, what does, what does that really mean? And what, what is, how do you actually become situational aware? And there's a lot of companies here that have, you know, these buzzwords and these tools. And again, it's not just you buy a software and all of a sudden you become situationally aware. That's a, it's a culmination of a thousand little things to become situationally aware. But I'd love to hear kind of a, that from the work you've done with Richard and, and kind of how that ties into this conversation. You know, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? The definition we use at SA Matters is, is uh, situational awareness matters is situational awareness, the ability to perceive and understand your environment as time progresses and then predict potential future outcomes in time to avoid bad things from happening. That is what we do. And that's how, where we train people to really see how really difficult that is. And it's so easy to trick the brain of first responders into not, you know, and not understanding or having confirmation bias or tunnel vision. There's all sorts of barriers that makes it really hard to understand your environment. There's more than 120 of them. And technology is actually one of them. And now there's technology that says, we're going to improve your situational awareness. And if you ask these vendors, what is situational awareness? And just having all the information of the incident scenes. Like, well, I, we, in the discussion I had with Kate, I'm, I'm still trying to come up with a scenario where we do a remake of the scene of Jack Nicholson from A Few Good Men in the courtroom, where a lieutenant actually says, give me all the data. And then somebody screams at him, you can't handle all the data. You know? mm -hmm. Because even if we would give you all the data, there is no way that you're cognitively able to actually process it all in the stress of an environment like a fire scene. So that's a good question. How much data is too much data? Or how much data is not enough data? I don't have an answer for that, but it's not the question we're asking ourselves. If you look around that, it's, it's like, can we prove that we can put all the information on a screen that's available? So from a technical perspective, yeah, sure we can do that. But... Are we really able to, to pick out the important stuff for the incident we're running? And speak on it, maybe if you can, from your own personal perspective in the fire service about when all of a sudden you're being called to an event and you need to gather the relevant data to be able to make an informed decision while also balancing getting your PPE on, getting there safely, and in responding. What's going on in a first responder's brain and what do you kind of what do you have to do and you know, how, what, what, what should people be thinking about in regards to creating data that actually can be used by first responders? There's two angles to that. The first of all, we need to realize that no matter how good the data is that we, that we collect, it will never truly represent the fire scene you go to because that's an outlier. That's where it begins with. So but where my problem is with some of these systems, they seem to sort of think that they present you the definite truth of what you're going to see, but that's, you know, it's always a reflection of the truth in data, which could be a couple of months old, for example. It's like, is, is this building still there or is it demolished in the meantime, for example? That's, that, that kind of stuff. And then the second part is, 
if you really want to help a, a first responder or a, a, a company officer going to a incident, you should understand his thinking process. It should be extremely personal and then be able to tap into his thinking process with smart technology. And I understand you, you'd, you'd love to hear from me like the solution, but I don't have that yet. One thing you said that I've heard you say before that I want to hear you riff on a little bit about is with, with outliers. Yeah. And why are we bad at tracking and finding outliers? The purpose of the existence of the fire service is to deal with the outliers. Everything we cannot fix with codes and standards and, and any of this in our build environment, that is where the fire department shows up to, to battle these outliers. Because if, if a specific type of incident would happen 10 times, you can create... You can create a policy around it to prevent it. Yeah. So instead of trying to find these outliers, so you had people a couple of years ago say, oh, with, with AI, we're going we're gonna to predict every fire. I don't believe in that, especially when it comes to residential fire, because humans are involved. Always show erratic behavior. As smoking, everybody knows smoking kills you, but still hundreds of thousands of people smoke, even though there's enough data for them to be told it's a, it's a really, really bad thing. So human behavior is, is not modeled that easy. So when humans come into, into place, especially in the residential environment, it's very hard to predict these things. If you go to wildfire, for example, there the amount of parameters is more limited. So you see some of the, the AI models created around wildfire are pretty accurate. You should talk about fuel, about vegetation, about weather, et cetera, et cetera which is still highly complicated, but you know, the, the, the amount of parameters infect, affecting wildfire propagation is relatively limited compared to the, the human environment. Irrational human. Hard to know what they're going to do, and they don't even know what they're doing themselves. Exactly, and, and you've seen these videos of security cameras in restaurants who are on fire, and that people are taking out their wallets because they want to pay before they leave, even though half of the restaurant is on fire, or... In a, in a warehouse, in a Macy's, that there is a fire, somebody, and somebody who still work, walks into the, in, a, in a fitting room with a couple of clothes because, yeah, well, that wasn't what I played, and I don't think the fire will get out of. And if you look at that, especially from, from a fire background, it's like, what on earth are you doing there? Why? Uh, so when humans come into play, you really mess, mess up any model because they probably do something you never expected. Yeah. But I feel like we could probably have this conversation going on for an hour, but I want to end with the two questions. One, sure. It's August 2023. You're deep in the weeds within the fire service and, and just a practitioner with all things tech and, and data. What are you most excited about with what's, what's coming down the road in the next 6, 12, 24 months um, in regards to both whether it's a European or American or just global fire service? What are, you, what are you excited about? What I'm excited about is that you finally now see a push in, in various venues that data standards you know everybody's talking about analytics but now they finally start to understand data standards is important so what what the USA, usfa is doing but there is a, a similar approach not on on incident data but more information about combustibility uh, in europe where they want to standardize that so you finally start to see that data standardization is getting a prominent place in the fire service industry i think that's a really good thing and that's a long process. I've been on, on, on commissions and in committees of developing data standards. It's, a, it's not an easy process. So yeah. I'm not sure we're going to see the results really soon, but I think it's really good that it started. And on the flip side, what, do you, um, what keeps you up at night? What, do you, what are you worried about in terms of where we're at and where we're going? 
there's a couple of things in the fire service that keep me up at night, but when we talk about technology and data, is that people tend to think that AI is gonna solve all our, all our data problems. Uh, it's like, yeah, well, the, the data quality is poor, but we have an AI algorithm that can improve it, and I don't buy that. Because it's evading the elephant in the room of data quality and, and what you're talking about and definitions, et cetera. And AI is not gonna solve that. And luckily you see when ChatGPT came out, people said, oh yeah, we're gonna do pre-planning with ChatGPT. And now here's some research that ChatGPT isn't as accurate as it seems at first glance. So mm. people start to become a bit more wary about it, which is good. I mean, it's still a, a, a technology that's being developed, but not tackling the hard problems by saying, well, oh, AI is going to solve that. I have a problem with that. That keeps me awake in, in this real. Yeah, you can't just take a pill and, and hope that it's just, you're going to get better. You know, and if you want to finally lose weight or whatever it may be, you, actually, you have to actually have to look yourself in the mirror and you got to do the hard work. Exactly. And, and, and do the work that nobody is ever going to see again, for example, or nobody's going to applaud you for because it doesn't look fancy, but it needs to be done. It's, yeah. Yeah. So a final mic drop, any sort of, it could be a comment, it could be a question, it could be a challenge, anything you could leave us with here today. Yeah, one of the things that I think we are not thinking about well enough right now within the fire service is, is, is the ethical and legal implications of data usage and, and smart algorithm usage. And with that, I mean, sooner or later, there will become a time that I, as a captain, will have a digital assistant who tells me to do something or give me an advice, and if I follow it as advice and somebody dies, who's responsible? Who's legally responsible? And how ethical is it that I have to live with that wrong decision for the rest of my life based on an AI agent? We haven't talked about that at all. In, in the legal perspective is that we, we're, we're giving access to incident commanders to so much data, their iPads are overflowing with information that we sooner or later might end up that an incident goes wrong, somebody gets prosecuted for that incident and then they say you had all the information on the ipad but you didn't use it well they're only human and yeah it's probably the segment from the captain sullyberger movies like let's make it human that's that would be my mic drop yeah all this technology but let's make it human bart thank you so much it's really been an honor to to be your friend to see everything <laughs> you're doing in the fire service and uh yeah, excited to continue to keep talking and, and see what we can do together. Yeah, and keep up the good work, Kevin. I think smartfirefighting.com is really important for the fire service as sort of a go-to place on all kinds of discussions like this. So Appreciate that, Bart. Yeah, absolutely. Till next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Smart Firefighting Podcast today. If you enjoyed what you heard and got any value, please drop us a rating, leave us a comment, or reach out to us on social media. Have a great day, and together we can advance the future of smart firefighting.